0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Making Good, a podcast about the people, products, ideas and initiatives doing the work the world needs now. My name's Lee Evans. This week's guest is Henry Brocklebank, Director of Conservation Policy and Evidence at Sussex Wildlife Trust here in the UK. I talked with Henry about kelp as a climax habitat and the new laws soon to be passed which will restrict trawling off the Sussex coast in the English Channel to four kilometres offshore. We talked about how the bylaw will help restore the 200 square kilometre forest lost to human activity. Why kelp is such a big deal for not just inshore waters, but the local culture and economy and the livelihoods of the fishing fleet. How the English Channel forms and how its shallowness has influenced its biodiversity, including the mammoth tusks dredged by the trawlers, which have done so much damage to the ecosystems offshore wind and how to do marine activity sensitively and we also talked about how to value nature and why marine environments have been slower to be included in investable models of habitat restoration like peat, mangrove and trees or urban forests. Henry, hi, thanks ever so much for um, for joining us this week on, um, on the Making Good podcast. I'm super excited to um, to download an enormous amount of information from you about um, about kelp restoration, um, could we um, could we start by
1: um, by introducing yourself um, and, and and why we're here today? Uh, hi, Lee. Um, I'm Henry Brocklebank, and I work at the Sussex Wildlife Trust. I'm the director for conservation policy and evidence, and within my remit sits the marine work that the wildlife trust is involved in so that's uh marine and coastal work all along the sussex coast and as a result of being involved in our marine work um, very excitingly about 18 months ago we started to become involved in the discussions about a consultation for a bylaw which led to the help our kelp campaign and that's what i'm going to be talking to you about is the help
0: our kelp great stuff so before we dive into the um the specifics of the um of the kelp restoration along the um along the coast could we um can we pan out a little bit and talk um talk a bit about the maybe the big big picture as i've um as i phrased it in our um in our email exchanges so um mm-hmm. can we try to um set the scene with um with with an understanding of what's happening in the um in the oceans at the moment um how climate change is is impacting upon the health of the um the oceans along our coast and beyond
1: yeah so climate climate change in the oceans is a a really big story and this is you hear an awful lot about carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and we don't want carbon dioxide in the atmosphere people particularly associate that with the warming of the of the world the earth the atmosphere but one of the other reasons is the acidification of our seas so the carbon dioxide in the water cause, uh, forms carbon, carbonic acid, and that's what the acidification of our And what, When you have more acidification in the water, even just subtle levels of higher acidification, um, some of the processes that marine life depends on simply cannot function. Those processes cannot exist because of the, anybody who's doing a GCSE chemistry. We'll know how the acidification of certain processes will change how calcium carbonate um, forms. And of course, we need calcium carbonate for all the shells of all of the crustacea, not just the crustacea, the plankton, everything. The whole web of life counts on exoskeletons of all the creatures which we have in our oceans. And so the acidification of our seas means the gradual breakdown of those processes. And without those processes, we don't have a functioning marine environment which we need in order to be pumping oxygen out into the atmosphere so we need it it's a big deal
0: okay so um so we know that ocean acidification is is um uh, affecting the um the ability of um, of sea life to to reproduce itself what evidence can we see of that along the um along the sussex coast
1: well i think um rather than evidence of the acidification, I think the evidence that we're seeing of a changing climate along the Sussex coast is actually because of the warming of the seas. And that was another aspect of global warming that you people would have heard about. And what happens species, the distribution of every species is essentially dictated by the climate envelope in which that species is comfortable to exist. So species X, Wants to exist exist in water of this particular temperature on this particular type of seabed, for example. When the when the temperature starts changing, even subtle changes, species start moving, and so we start to see in Sussex species that we traditionally haven't really seen. So snake locks and loxanenom, snake locks and um, a typical species that. We see now in Sussex, which we wouldn't have seen so much a few years ago. And if you go rock pooling in Brighton around Ovingdean or somewhere like that, you know, it wouldn't be that unusual to see a snake locks enemy in a rock pool off the Sussex coast, but actually that's quite a new thing to be seen. They would have been further south.
0: Are we at the stage of a mass extinction event would you say as we we talk about um on on land are we are we are we are we talking about that in the um in the in the sea as well are we losing a significant number of species or are they as you say moving around to uh, to different areas
1: i think what's interesting is when you're in the marine environment so much less is known about the species and the species distribution and um, the makeup of communities in the marine environment so just on a just on a simple level, if you've got a bit of an interest in wildlife, you, you can go for a walk down your street into the countryside and you can observe and you can learn, you can teach yourself with books. It's much, much more difficult in the marine environment, so the there is far less expertise around of people knowing and understanding. And then when you start talking about species that you can only access through diving or through uh deep sea exploration then it's it's hardly surprising we know so little about the I moon mean, it's like in uh, new scientists and national geographic it's not an unusual thing for new species to be turning up curious amazing wonderful things
0: and i know that um, that changes in um in 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 composition and, and temperature are changing um, the flows of water right this is one of the um, one of the elements that's leading to changing weather patterns species are um, are moving around is it is it affecting um, is it affecting different parts of um, of different oceans equally is it is this all happening everywhere at the same time or are there places which are um, which are faring better
1: oh that's that's a, a difficult question i wouldn't know i would expect you know i go to scotland on my holidays the seas around the Isle of Skye seem as beautiful as they ever did. But actually, if you're an Isle of Skye ecologist, you probably go, ah, but actually this has changed and that has changed. You need um, regular and um, very specific observations in order to denote change. And there's so many different reasons for change. Um, It's very hard to make an assessment just from kind of casual observations.
0: This, um, this, this kind of the, the the picture that you're painting, there's less scientific understanding of um of of some of these processes. Is that only attributable to the fact that it's um you know that it's more difficult to get them, or is it is this is it been marginalised and neglected? Should there has there historically been a pattern of um of of you know avoiding it because it's difficult? Has it been underfunded study of this?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. It's whether is the marine environment in the too difficult to deal with pile. Um, it's interesting that in the current legislation with the Environment Bill for Biodiversity Net Gain, the terrestrial habitats have have been quite um, had quite a lot of effort put into establishing what the right metrics are, but not so for the coastal and the marine habitats. Um, and we know that with with climate change, we know that coastal and marine habitats have the potential to store huge amounts of carbon. However, the metrics, the actual, the agreed amount of carbon that they sequester per hectare per year, et cetera, has not been made into an investable model as it has done for peatland or it has done for trees. Whereas we know that the potential of our coastal and marine habitats is enormous.
0: This is um, interesting. I watched the um, the launch yesterday of a um, of a, a new report into the um, into in mangroves um, around the world. The seven hundred and fifty remaining um, remaining mangroves and um, and the um, the effort there was exactly how you describe it. it was about um, how how can we think about um, uh, understanding the value because apparently mm. half of them are sur- half of them are surrounding um, uh, sea level rise threatened uh, coastal cities. So there is there is a um, an ROI, a measurable ROI from um, from investing in the um, in the health of these um, of these coastal ecosystems. Um, um, I want to get into a little bit into that with the specifics um, of of the Sussex um, restoration. So how we might start to think about the. matriculate in the benefits of um of some of this um this this amazing work that you're gonna um that you're gonna talk about. But I wonder if we could uh, we could set the scene a little bit with the um Sussex go zoom in a little bit from the global picture with climate change but can we talk a little bit about the the formation of the um of the landscape? Because I've got a feeling I well, I I don't know a huge amount about amount about it, even as a as a Sussex resident. But I think it's going to be fascinating. For the f- first thing to say is that it's not it's not always been underwater, has it? Right. So so like, what's the um, what's the story of how we got to where we are now?
1: Well, it, it's fascinating how it hasn't been um, it hasn't always been underwater, and also how shallow it is. The English Channel, um, the average depth is about sixty three meters. I mean, that's nothing. If you think about the oceans of the world, what the depth of those oceans, which is kilometers deep. Really, it's the English Channel, to, channel is a veritable puddle compared to those oceans. Um, and there was a land bridge over to the continent, as we like to call it, or over to mainland Europe um, as recently as 10,000 years ago. And we know this not just because of the kind of geological understanding of the processes, but because of the, some of the evidence that is found within that that area of where the, where people literally would be walking to France. Um, It's one of the things that I found fascinating is talking to some people from the aggregate industry. So offshore from Sussex, there's quite major aggregate extraction. And one of the companies in their treasure trove of things they found whilst extracting aggregate is mammoth tusks, which, they, which they've pulled out from the sea. Oh, what's this blocking our big vacuum cleaner? Oh, it's a mammoth tusk. And there's another mammoth tusk, which was found just off Cookmere Haven. So in um, shallow waters there. Um, and again, it just, rem- it just reminds you that, you know, this was once land and it wasn't actually that long ago in, in geological terms.
0: Fascinating. So, hang on a second. There are. There. This is how we get a lot of the. Um, I guess this is what chippings for that go on railway lines or um, that go into the, um, into the building industry, construction industry. So there's just there's a boat out there with a giant um, with a giant um, Hoover just taking up, um, material from the um, from the seabed.
1: So there's very specific areas that are licensed for aggregate extraction within the whole sort of stretch of the channel
0: this is um it's really interesting so um so about, about 10 up till about ten thousand years ago the um we had um, we had um clear dry land between what's current yeah. Britain and um and France what do we know if it um if the water encroached quickly or or did it um...
1: I think it must have encroached quite quickly actually because it was following the last glaciation um So, the melt from that glacial period all collected in a basically a lake, uh, which would have is kind of uh, almost off the Kent Essex coast in the channel there. And this huge lake where all of the glacial meltwater seemed to be pouring into. And then I guess one day it broke its banks, and there's the English Channel
0: amazing. And so and there...
1: so I must have, that I mean, this is my very, very layman's um, interpretation of my understanding of how it formed. And I mean, extraordinary, really extraordinary, the change in the landscape that can happen. And what did um,
0: what was happening at the other end of the channel at that point in time, you know, the areas it enters the um, as it enters the uh, the Atlantic? If the um...
1: well, I imagine that the water was always flowing in that direction towards the end and um i think the huge changes in sea level happening at that end as well at the end of the last glaciation.
0: as um as a, as one little further um further aside um i think um the fact that there was um an ice age and um and it and it warmed up and melted a lot of that ice is often it's often thrown out by um by pub scientists as evidence of um of uh, warming climate not necessarily being um, caused by uh, human activity in the last couple of hundred years. do we know what just just to clear up do we know what um, do we know what caused that warming that sudden warming
1: oh gosh I wouldn't be able to tell you what caused it because um I'm sure from a scientific perspective there's all sorts of different reasons. I think it well another interesting piece of evidence about the channel is that when you think about our rivers in Sussex, they're all tributaries of a larger river that was basically flowing along what is now the channel, and the original riverbed, if you remember from school day geography that you have silts and alluviums around river systems, and those silts and alluviums from that original riverbed are still there. Just underwater, and that's part of the complexity of the substrates in the channel. Reflect that original river system, and our River Ada, River Ooze, they all would have been tributaries flowing down into that.
0: So, at what point then, after this um, sudden influx of um, of um, ice melt, um, uh, what was the process of um, of formation for the um, for the ecosystem that we're now trying to restore later on? What what what, what happened in um, in and over what period of time?
1: that once obviously once any system starts to settle down you're going to start to get um, different communities establishing so the seabed will always start off with those simple formation the sponges soft corals as soon as your substrate starts to settle depending on whether you've got rocky substrate sandy substrate then um, communities are going to start to establish themselves and what exactly as you do on land you get um imagine woodland on land okay woodland doesn't just suddenly appear as woodland it builds up the vegetation just starts changing you get more shrubby vegetation and that shrubby vegetation comes with all its own different wildlife niches and habitats and species and then gradually part of that shrubby vegetation will turn into full-blown woodland immature woodland mature woodland etc trees fall down clearings are made is exactly the same principles in the marine environment but you've got things like currents and you've got different substrates is it muds is it alluvium is it rocks what what is what is the substrate that these um, communities are based on and so communities will come they will evolve they'll end up in a climax vegetation of some sort they'll move move along with that. So it's all about the sort of time really with the sea to just let it be. Same with any natural environment anywhere. I don't think the sea is anywhere different.
0: And so um <clears throat> that, that that really helps us to understand the um, the long the lot kind of the long view the um that brings us up to the well maybe not the now because we're trying to um, we're going to be talking about some um, some restoration so what I would guess the next obvious question is what's gone what's gone wrong and um and 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 why
1: well what's gone wrong is um is a difficult way to put it i think that over the years uh the the fishing industry has evolved and changed and new techniques have come in and they've been very popular and they've had great, great catches and that's been very successful. But what has not happened because of the way that we generally measure our economic success is never by looking at what has been lost as a result of the economic gain is actually trawling, which is a a fishing practice where heavy gear is... uh, is pulled along the seabed or dragged along the seabed when you've got soft substrates and when you've got quite vulnerable habitats that trawling has a very big impact on what is happening and you know a bit of trawling is very different from continual trawling every year going backwards and forwards um, and so what trawling has done in the near shore sussex environment is it's it's damaged the habitats that are there, but in doing so, they're not able to regenerate, and so it's that natural regeneration of those communities that's really important. And so, what what we're um, looking for when the nearshore trawl, near trawling bylaw gets signed off, hopefully very soon, is that with trawling going out to four kilometres, and those nearshores having no trawling pressure that actually those habitats will finally get the chance to start regenerating. And we've lost absolutely staggering habitats in Sussex and because no one can see it, no one has even noticed. Um, We did a talk to a residents' association in Worthing and we were talking about how we used to have kelp forests off the coast of Sussex and how these, this kelp forest was, you know, 200 square kilometers, of kelp forest, like no mean, not a tiny kelp forest. It's a really significant size kelp forest. And most of the people in this particular meeting were, let's say, over the age of 60. Five, so they were a mature, a mature group. And they were like, oh, my goodness, we remember the piles of seaweed on the beach when we were children, we used to play on them. We really remember the smell of the seaweed on the beach because it was absolutely normal. There was so much habitat offshore that when a storm would happen, seaweed would get pulled out, end up on the beach. And you know that that caused an issue in its own right, but they hadn't noticed that you just don't get that anymore. After a storm, you don't expect to see great big piles of seaweed on the Sussex beach, but actually that's the sign of the health Of the sea, that's one of the the indicators.
0: So, um, so kelp is it doesn't go everywhere, right? It's not, it's not a, uh, um, um, it's not a species that's found in every single coastal location. You have seagrasses and um, Mm. mangroves like we've um, like we've described. Mm. Is it the particular kind of combination of um, stones and sand material that you um, that you described earlier that accounts for why in we we particularly we particularly had that um, we we have kelp here? So, I guess my um I guess the question is why uh, why is it um something that we should be worried about and trying to push boats away from what is it that's why why is kelp what what's so great about kelp
1: well, what's so great about kelp is actually there's numerous strands to this, so i'm gonna start off on a purely on a wildlife front okay so on a wildlife front, kelp is like rainforest in terms of the biodiversity that it supports so uh, kelp in itself is it's got a stalk and uh, can range in size so the type of kelp the most common type that you get in Sus- Sussex is only about half a meter in height but in within it within the um the mass of stalks that you would get that are attached to the seabed, or it can be kind of free living as well. Um, what you get is a loads of niches where various different species like crabs, like cuttlefish, like juvenile fish, like top shells, like algae, um, um, marine algae, uh, seaweeds, actually growing off the kelp. It's a whole ecosystem in its own right. And that's why it's called a climax, um, a climax habitat because it's a that's the peak that's where we want to get to is to this really rich rich environment and by having all of these different niches you get so many different species that are able to thrive and actually what our fishing industry needs is places where our fish can thrive. So we're helping hoping that a really abundant kelp forest in Sussex and all of the successive stages of Marine communities that lead up to that kelp will, will provide far better environment for the fish that they are going to be catching offshore, and also lobsters and all, all sorts. It's a, it's a really significant fishing industry in Sussex.
0: There's a clear line that you've drawn there between um, between biodiversity and um, and food security, right? So the the the, the abundance of presumably um, presumably these um, these um, rich um, kelp forests beds that you've described and the fish come in and are these new species of fish that species that or species that have declined are they going to be um are we should we what what fish uh what fish can we find in the on the oh, i've I've had friends catching sardines on a summer evening bar, like barbecue off them off off brighton beach and eating them there on the beach and it's and it's great but apart from the sardines what was the um what have you um what have we got off the coast
1: well i think what i think a really uh interesting species to look at is actually lobsters. So lobsters need quite a diverse uh, environment where they can hide and live out their life cycle. When you have a seabed that's being regularly trawled, has got very little vegetation, or veg- vegetation, very little uh, plant, can, plant and algal communities to live around and feed on all the different species that are around that then you're gonna have a limited number of lobsters. Now, lobsters is a really significant industry in Sussex. But when you, once you start improving that, that environment, you're going to start naturally improving the lobster environment that goes with it. Now, in Lime Bay, which is in Dorset, where they had a trawling exclusion zone, what they found was in just in a few years, I think it was within five years, there was four and a half times more lobsters for them to catch. And the local potting community appreciated and realised that actually moving trawling away from this protected area had all sorts of benefits that they they didn't realise and appreciate at the beginning of the journey, but actually not that far into it, they they were reaping the benefits. And so we're really hoping we can monitor things like Um, lobster catches etc and just see what the changes are over time nothing's going to be instantaneous I mean what they found in Lyme Bay they had the trawling exclusion and they looked at it for a good couple of years like oh my god this is embarrassing nothing's happening we've made such a song and dance about this and then suddenly things started to slowly appear and then slowly appear started into quite rapid changes and then within a few years it was um, you know indescribable compared to where it had started
0: so this is really in there's a couple there's a couple of questions in there one is um it, it is there a point beyond which it's in, it's it's unlikely that the um that the um the marine life will recover mm. and and do we know and would do we would we could we know in advance or is it best best to try
1: well i think the next the next few years will be really interesting to find that out because the the substrate has changed because of the trawling and so that will bring different with different areas will have different substrates so we've already got quite a few different academic organisations involved working with the Sussex Inshore Fisheries Conservation Authority looking at the baseline data of well where is the kelp remaining what is the state of the habitat in the, these areas that we're looking at so we're starting to understand what that regeneration journey will look like and you know some areas kelp might return quite quickly in some areas it might just take quite a while but we're in it for the long run we want to see this habitat back
0: yeah so once the one uh, the once the exclusion has been um, been set then um then it is an, a, a process of n- a natural process of unfolding of, um, of succession yeah. right of what what comes in is the um is there any any sense when I, when i spoke with um with uh, with tony whitbread about uh, rewilding Yes, he um, he was explaining the process of um, of disturbance and succession that um, that that, mm. that creates not just abundance but also variety and um, diversity. Diversity. Mm. Is there any is there any merit to having um, um, trawling or or disturbance from human activity within these e- ecosystems, or is it is that a misnomer? Is it much better to think? Of
1: well, this? trawling is by no means the only human activity that's happening in those areas. I mean, you've, the, the bylaw doesn't stop um, fishing with nets. It doesn't stop um, potting. It's only taking out the destructive uh, trawling process. So lots of human activity is already going to happen there. And actually the natural, if you think about rewilding, rewilding is about um, putting in, restoring natural processes and the natural process In terms of the seabed is actually allowing it to have a natural process allowing regeneration so if you think about sort of rewilding projects and what they do on a land-based system is it nature is just allowed to just get on with it with as little interference as possible you know give or take this kind of nuance of a particular site and what's happening here is rewilding on a really really large scale and that's very exciting because there are disturbances. I mean, there is a human-made disturbance, but actually just storm damage. Now, kelp gets ripped up during storms. I was saying about kelp ending up on the seabed. That's what you would call natural disturbance. And that's where that natural disturbance has would have happened all along, but with trawling happening, it never got the chance to regenerate afterwards. So it's it's thought that probably... The big storm of 87 was really critical for the Sussex kelp because it would have been hugely damaged by the storm and that's a completely natural process, but it never would have had the chance to regenerate as it would have done even five years before that, just because of trawling, trawling pressure just increasing at that time.
0: I guess this, the quest, this follow-on question then to that might not be easy to um, answer. I don't really think about the 1987 storm as being it's not popularly associated with uh, or as an example of climate change right it's not it's not it's not discussed mm-hmm. in that um in in those terms certainly it wasn't at the time um, but to the extent that um occasionally more violent weather is going to be a feature of the um yeah. you know of the uh, of the times that we're um, that that we're in now yeah, i yeah. sure um is that is that kind of atmospheric disturbance likely to delay or, or slow rather the, um, the, the process of recovery or even maybe change it in ways that we can?
1: Well, I mean it will influence it but we need to have kelp there to even know what that influence will be and actually the we need to think of the seabed as a real diversity and a mosaic of different habitats of which kelp is the the climax habitat, but the others will all be existing kelp much like a woodland has a canopy layer. It has understory just like a woodland. And so, you know, quite often in the storm, the the seaweed that you see get drawn up onto the beach is actually the seaweed that's been attached to the kelp. It's not just kelp that gets drawn up. So um, storms, Storms will be storms, and we won't know until we've got the kelp fully regenerated what that impact will be.
0: There may be um, there may be one. I, I I doubt it, but there may be one or two people wondering um, whether or not um, marine wind farms um offshore wind farms are um, are problematic for the um for the marine environment so they situ- is one of the considerations when it, when um decisions are made about where they're situated um likely to have been questions like what's going on on the um what's the marine life like on the seabed oh
1: absolutely there's there's an awful lot of thought and consideration goes into the location a lot of consult consultation it's consultation going at the moment about the rampion extension and um The consideration for marine protected areas um, is is all very much part of that discussion. And so, um, you know, Sussex Wildlife Trust, for example, will be submitting comments on each phase of the the proposals reiterating around marine protected areas and the impact on existing marine wildlife.
0: Is there... um... (coughs) Build back better. Is there any, um, is there anything um, within the um, on within the like kind of the 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 horizon, the time horizon for the Wildlife Trust and for other other stakeholders about not just returning um, returning the kelp forests and the, the uh, marine conservation to bring us back to maybe to where we were to a more balanced um, ecosystem off the coast, but also to go beyond. I was the reason why I ask is thinking. Um, I was watching a documentary the other night which was looking at how New York might respond to sea level rise. And one of the one of the ideas that was being proposed was um was oyster beds mm. and showing how um how a little bit like with mangroves how they um how they attenuate the um the worst excesses of mm. you know of tidal patterns especially like storm surges and what have you. But there was there seemed to be modeling which showed that um that there were in this case the introduction of oyster farms, um, dotted all around the coast, would not only provide food and um, livelihood benefits for the um, for the communities, but also slow and um, and moderate the um, the surges of um, of, um, of of stormwater. Is there anything like that that we might think that that's under consideration or which could be under consideration? for coastal erosion um, for mitigating new yeah. So um, kelp forests
1: are understood to mitigate quite a considerable amount of wave energy but what we're trying to dig into is like well actually there's seven different species of kelp ranging from the giant kelp off the Californian coast which I'm sure many of your listeners would have seen amazing footage of seals swimming around the deep kelp forest Um, and which is a very different type of kelp to what we Uh, hoping is going to regenerate beautifully along the Sussex coast. So, um, and at the time when our storms are most likely to happen, which is kind of autumn and winter, is is the kelp in the process of dying back or is the kelp in a position that it's going to be changing that wave energy? So we're trying to understand exactly what the implication is in the English Channel setting, because there's all sorts of research about kelp amazing stuff and we're really lucky to be working with academics that know all of these bits and bobs but it's not necessarily our type of kelp in our location and the way waves work and the way storm damage damage happen is very very bespoke to your your kind of your topography that you've got leading up um but you know we very much hope that when when you hear people talking about nature-based solutions that when it comes to the marine environment every single nature based solution will be put on the table as something that we should be doing and actually though we've been talking mostly about the climate crisis but there is an there's an ecological crisis at the same time and the two are so interlinked you you can't really look at one without the other and actually just restoring nature nature's recovery at sea is a really it's a really important piece that all of us need to be thinking about it's you know it's not just what happens on our land it's in our waters where you know the, the majority of our uk wildlife is in our marine environment and our coastal environment
0: is there um i mean we seems like we're in a um there's a canal boat going past now i don't think that would be so noisy that it will <laughs> all so we'll go here the um uh what's going to ask ah so um the recent um uh, it's made the news recently with um with the the final separation in inverted commas from the european union that one of the sticking points and indeed now one of the teething problems is um is around um is around fishing and i think it's it's it 's crystallizing in the popular in like, in the mainstream news and in the popular consciousness around as a as a question of around um around paperwork and bureaucracy and and what have you but is there anything that could be done certainly within Sussex do you think to expand the way that people are thinking about the sea from just i don 't even really think even though I regularly buy fish from the local fishermen down down the road i don 't think of Sussex as being a particularly productive um uh, fishing region,
1: it, it may So you're talking about uh, 26 million pounds worth of fish a year going through Sussex ports. Interestingly, um, some, of, some of the main species that are commercial species in Sussex, we don't eat. It's a European market. So I, I don't pretend to know how brexit has impacted those markets, but spider crabs is a commercial species in Sussex as are cuttlefish, but you won't see them on the Sussex menu, but you 'll see them on Spanish menus, yeah, so we don 't eat our own produce
0: i guess um this 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 is quite quite a big question, maybe too open ended to provide a satisfactory answer to, but insofar as fishing and um marine activities have provided quite a, a a a strong thread running through british culture over the, over mm-hmm. the years everything from <clears throat> Um, you know, from from um, naval sayings which have found their way into the um, the English language, like posh or or, or, or thinking of sea shanties mm. or or the, the national fondness for the shipping forecast, right? So it's 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 here <laughs> and it's present in it. But it, I mean, yeah. it, 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 in in lots of ways, it is kind of it is present and and like kind of yeah,
1: well, we're a maritime nation and it's part identity, I suppose.
0: Yeah, exactly. And there is and and that is that. I I just wonder if there are um, if there's some way if there, if if you think about maybe that maybe this is a question more for the trust and for the the trusts in a in a in a wider sense but is there are there ways that we can tap use this um the brexit um moment and it's um and it and the fact that it's come to hang on fish in in some ways or at least at the moment to try to um to lever open some some a wider sense of what the marine, um, the, what what culture deriving from marine um, from our marine life, right? our, our marine communities off the um, off the coast, make that centralise that.
1: Well, I, I think um, the as as a wildlife trust movement will uh, probably stay away from the sensitivities around Brexit, but in terms of the identities of our coastal communities, that I mean that's really really important. I'm always fascinated by the fact that if you go on holiday to Cornwall, you'd be unlikely to come away having not had a really good fish supper at some point. If you go on holiday to Lyme Regis or something very popular place for people to go you wouldn't go there and not have a seafood experience. It's part of what has culturally been built into their touristic offer. I don't think that's very that's not so much on the Sussex offer. The fish and chips on the beach isn't anything to do with locally caught sustainable seafood. And wouldn't it be great to change that um, touristic offer and touristic messaging that it is all about the local and the sustainable. And look, we've regenerated our kelp forest. And as a result, we're giving you lobster and chips.
0: I wonder if that's not that's I, that's a that's a wheel I'll put my shoulder to for sure. Maybe there's someone in the circle of people that listen to this program that can um, that can help us help us crack on with that. Henry, this has been really, really eye opening and um, and informative for me as I as I knew it would be. I've got a few more questions that I'd like to pose to you that I pose to um, I post to all of my um, all of my guests. First of all, um, if you could be uh, president for the day and change one thing to make the world a better place, what would it be?
1: I put some thought to this. (laughs) So I would get into a time machine, which I would have because I was President and I'd have one commissioned, and I would go to 1944 to a conference in the Breton Woods in New Hampshire, which is where um, the, the concept of GDP, Gross Domestic Product, as a way of accounting the wealth of nations was defined and agreed as a global way. And I would storm that conference (laughs) and go, stop, you're making a horrendous mistake. And um, that's because we never included the quality of our natural environment as part of the wealth of our nations. And I think that, you know, you can say, oh, it's capitalism that's done it. It's, It's actually, it's how we monitor our wealth I think is the really big problem, that we don't see the degradation as our natural environment, as a stain on our nation in any way. And it's it's a global issue. So I I'm going to a, a kind of global interpretation of it. So that's what I do. As president i get in a time machine and i'd storm a conference in 1944 in new hampshire
0: would you um would you approach someone like the would you it was at and it denature was the american representative wasn't it i i used to teach this stuff when i was at you uni- know when i was doing my phd at, at university around the like, all right the way that the, the the architecture of the um of the post war international mm-hmm. settlement emerged from these um from these mm-hmm. conversations it was Keynes as well wasn't there that was um i believe was um i believe was was there.
1: i think you probably know far more
0: about it than i, do. I don't i don't know that i know far more about it and it, and and if i knew anything about it it's um it's it's withered. just the um the headlines in the um in the year since so it turns out that you don't need international relations all that much when you're um when you're working in built environment so um okay i can um i can i can wholeheartedly um in endorse that is the um is there a for um, for other listeners, is that is there another measure that you um, that you um, is there or or a, like a discursive framework almost that's emerged that's that's better that you're aware of?
1: Yeah, there's um, there's been a lot of talk recently about this natural capital framework that you have fiscal capital, which everyone's used to talking about money in or wealth in fiscal terms, but then natural capital talks about your assets in terms of the natural environment and the services and benefits that it provides. So fiscal capital, human capital, and natural capital. And if we measured all of them, then we would get a better interpretation and a better uh, projections for our, our countries and our, you know, planetary.
0: It's ways of, um, it's ways of thinking about assets that are translatable into, um, in, into yeah. ways that, um, so it's a, bear, a fair accounting program for-, um, for...
1: You, can't, you can't monetize nature in its entirety there is an integral value of nature that's full stop end of story so i'm not saying for a second that a butterfly isn't worth a million pounds because it it is to me but actually when it comes to nations and the way they interpret themselves and their actions the natural environment has to be in there and i i really hope we have a world in the future where that is absolutely embedded in I,
0: i i see encouraging points that it's um that that it's starting to happen even if even if only defensively through the exposure like we were talking about earlier with mangroves um of of um of 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 assets with a fully understood value to um to um, threat of um of climate change. Um great okay um and then um to wrap up three good things please uh, first of all a book or a podcast you'd like to recommend um so
1: it's not a podcast it's Uh, A series of webinars, which you can join in on, which is for people anywhere in the world. This is uh, something that my colleagues at the Sussex Wildlife Trust do. And it's something that we've designed specially for lockdown. And they're, um, I think they're usually on Thursday evenings. It's Sussex Wildlife Trust Nature Table webinar. And they somehow bring together love of nature and just wit. They're just funny. And, you know, at the moment, I've got a full-time job and I'm home educating. And by the time I actually get to sit down and it's unfortunately not with a glass of wine because I've drunk it all, but (laughs) by the time I get to sit down in the evenings, it is such a cause of joy listening to the, the wit and the humour and the absolutely delightful banter about wildlife, drawing in so many different people, so, so many random ideas, but it's just all for people who just love wildlife. And what's, the and want the to rel- what's the name of the series? Uh, it's, if you go to the Sussex Wildlife Trust uh, uh, social media pages, it's, I think it's called Nature Table, Sussex Wildlife Trust Nature Table webinars.
0: I will. Um, I'll put a link in the, um, in the in the show notes. Brilliant.
1: And a uh, big shout out to my some of my colleagues. I think especially our name Michael Blenko, who can blend humour and wildlife. It's beautiful.
0: That sounds amazing. Right. Okay. That's going on the list. So um, second up, a person that inspires you. And I know that you met David Attenborough when, um, or, or you worked. David Attenborough did a film, didn't he, about the um, the kelp
1: restoration? He, yeah, he narrated our film.
0: So um, did you get? To,
1: um, yeah oh god no I didn't get to meet him I was like can I be the driver can I be the backup can I hold the can I hold the cameraman's wallet what can can I do um no I didn't get
0: he doesn't have to be the um the person in fact he probably shouldn't know that I mentioned him a person that inspires you or a social media account that you think people should follow
1: um again I'm going to go for a social media account because um and I'm also I'm going to go for the fun end. I'm obviously I'm interested in envir- environmental issues but environmental issues can be if you if you work in them all, all the time they can be horrendously depressing and horrendously exciting and so um as with the webinars what I really love is things that remind us of the joy of nature the joy and the fun why do we like it in the first place you know we, there's all the serious stuff that, oh, my God, it provides all the things that we need to live. But actually, there's also, it's amazing. And let's not forget for a second, it's amazing. And so the, um, the social media account that I'm going to share with you is called Tiny Recorder. And Tiny Recorder is a Facebook social media account. And it's a Lego man. It's a little Lego man who goes on adventures in the countryside I have to say, quite a lot in Sussex, but he does go all over the place. He went to the Silly Isles recently. And it is such a joy to watch because the narrator is an ecologist. So the, the grown-up who works with Tiny Recorder is obviously an ecologist, and Tiny Recorder is an ecologist, but obviously he sees everything from a one-inch perspective. <laughs> and it's amazing. just fun
0: <laughs> it's aimed at adults and, and and children fun for the family it's,
1: it's aimed at, it's aimed at adults. there's a lot of sci, sci-fi references in there most of which that go over my head but it is it's very witty but kids get it too
0: it's amazing i've I, not i've not heard of I've heard of this before. yeah
1: it's really fun
0: i um i'll add i'll add that uh, a link a link to that i'll make it a link from you and um and i'll add it to the list what's um to, fin- to finish up and this might be difficult it might be really easy um, your favourite place to immerse yourself in nature and why?
1: Oh my god, easy, easy peasy. Um, I'm a I'm a woodlands person myself. Um, so you know I was thinking when when I was thinking about this question, I could think I could think of all of the amazing places I've been to in life. And I, I don't want to I could whitter on about the west coast of Scotland, I could whitter on about New Zealand, but actually a Sussex woodland to just lightly Slightly bury yourself in the kind of the crunchy leaves at the bottom of a really big tree, and then just lie there and look up at the, um, the branches above you. I've done a lot of this in lockdown <laughs> with my son. I've done a lot of hanging out in woodlands, lying on the ground and looking up at the, the branches and the leaves, and as the leaves come and go, and listening to all the different things you can see. It's like a thoroughfare. If you lie there for long enough, you just see the whole community story that's going on around you and it was I love that
0: it's medicine I um I was really missing the woods when um during the during the shutdown I had the the joy of being able to reconnect with the sea like I borrowed a kayak an inflatable kayak from my um from my brother and because it was actually pretty good weather and once the police had stopped clearing it well no actually it was because the police were clearing everyone off the beach there were like six police cars going up and down stop you couldn't sit down you could just walk like when we were right in, right. in the depths of it like back last April into May but it got warmer and I noticed that the um that the paddle boarders were all going down were there with their paddle board and just bobbing out to sea and there was obviously no one there wasn't a um we didn't and have the police anyone, tell them off no one to tell them off so I was like hang on a second this is the way to um, this is the way to do it. So I borrowed my brother's inflatable kayak, and yeah, then that's what that's what we do. Just go down to the um, to the seafront every day, and spent more time than I have done probably in the previous ten years in um, in uh, in or on or near the um, near the sea. And that was that was a real joy. But I have to say that. I mean, I would hate to have to choose because I was really starting to feel it, you know, that um, that feeling of not being not being able to have a clump around in the um, in the woods. Right. Like, like you say, and just be and sit with the um, sit with the trees. And also, you know, I'm really missing the, the mountains as well. Mm. Um a joy. Well, Henry, thanks ever so much for um, for sharing all of that with us. That's um, that's been that's been brilliant. Almost no editing on your end, and lots of editing on um, on, uh, <laughs> on my part. I mean, like I say, if I can get your permission, I um, I'm, I'm in love with this um, this kelp forest backdrop that you've um, that you've got behind you. So when I put this out on um, on the different channels, I'll um, I maybe maybe attach a uh, a picture. In fact, let me um, if I don't make a ping, we'll do that. Yeah, and I'll
1: send you the um, picture credit for who's picture
0: is sounds great all right fantastic henry thanks ever so much for um for taking the time today and i'll um i'll look forward to seeing you again soon in a woodland
1: yeah well take care lovely to speak julie to i hope it didn't blether too much
0: it was a joy thanks henry